0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Almost a year in the making and four months later than planned, the UK's updated master plan for defence is finally released. Was it worth the wait?
1: You won't find shiny new announcement, comms-led policy-driving unsustainable force designs or any major new platforms for military enthusiasts to put up on their charts of the bedroom wall.
0: There will be no reversal of cuts that shrink the army by thousands of soldiers and a third of its tanks. There's no new money either, but the Defence Secretary says billions already promised for new equipment and changes to priorities will make UK forces much fit and import the lessons of Ukraine.
2: We stand by
1: the command paper that we published in 2021, but we must get there faster, doing defence differently and getting ourselves onto a campaign footing
0: so what has changed and what hasn't? Mike will explain what it all means for the armed forces and we assess whether this refresh really can deliver robust and credible forces.
3: By focusing on stuff that they can manage internally, they're giving themselves a fighting chance, but, but I am just nervous. It will run out of time.
2: Sitrep. With Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark.
0: So, Mike, um, the Defence Secretary said it himself, no shiny new announcements. They stand by the command paper of 2021, but they need to deliver that plan faster.
4: And you can see that throughout this uh, defence white paper, that Ukraine, of course, is the great uh, thing that's intervened. That's the event that's taken place between 2021 and now. And undoubtedly, Ukraine has increased the focus. It's added focus to this whole paper, but it hasn't changed anything. And so although we now think there is more urgency and more importance in everything that was said in 2021, what was said in 2021 is basically reinforced now in 2023.
0: Okay, so let's talk through the key points. So... Is there anything new, has anything actually changed?
4: Well, as the Defence Secretary himself said, there are no big announcements on new equipment, there's no big announcements on on, uh, money uh, or on numbers. The thing that I most noticed was that, and we've said on this programme before, that the MOD always says up front that people are the most important asset. They normally say that in the foreword, and then the policy for people is normally chapter 10 or 11. In this case, there it is, a chapter one, so full marks to the MOD for that. And they do recognize that they've got to change the offer. They've got to try to create different types of forces. But again, when you get into the detail of that, we're talking about, yet again, revisiting the reserve and how to use the reserves in a more immediate way, how to actually squeeze more numbers out of a a very small group of of reserves, actually. And so there's nothing new in there. And then in terms of the uh, technologies, it's just as I think you implied in your introduction, it's more urgency for getting the deployability things right so that we can deploy this material. And I think there's a bit of advance uh, compared to 2021, a bit more specific understanding of what the Army needs. I mean, we know where the Navy's going because they've got all their equipment that they looked for back in 2010. We know what the RAF has got to do, uh, and what they're trying to do, and they've got most of what they wanted, certainly in terms of airframes, but the army was the one that was so far behind. And we can see from this a bit more detail about what the army will have to have, but what it's going to have will still be in very small numbers.
0: And on that thing that hasn't changed, that the one big one is the cuts the army announced in 2021. Ben Wallace himself had said they were being reviewed. The chief of the general staff said it would be perverse to go ahead with those cuts after the invasion of Ukraine. How big a hit is this to the army?
4: Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it's not unexpected. And, um, you know, we all, we all believe that Ben Wallace knows that Patrick Sanders, Chief of the General Staff, is absolutely right. The army is too small for what the government as- assumes it will do. And this number, this 72,000, is neither here nor there in the sense that there's no, there's no real analysis behind it. It's just the number we happen to be at. Um, and remember, you know, it was only a few years ago that 82,000 was the minimum below which the army will not fall. And I was mm-hmm. there when Michael Fallon said it. And I was there again, I think about 18 months later, when he said, Our aspiration is to get the army up to 82,000. I pointed out to him from the floor, I don't think he was very pleased about it. I said, I chaired you when you said that 82,000 was the minimum. And he sort of said, No, that's not really true. And I said, Well, I'm afraid it was. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, there we are. Uh, the, the numbers come down to what it is now. and there is there's no strategic logic behind that number whatsoever, and nobody in the MOD can argue differently, not with any conviction anyway, and so we're stuck with it. There's there's no more money for more troops, and that's where we are with, with numbers. The Army's number now is simply inadequate, and I've, I've got no hesitation in saying that, it is inadequate to do the jobs which the government says the army has got to be able to do
0: okay so you say inadequate but there is a kind of a logic you know Mm -hmm. if you have more troops and you can't afford to equip them properly
4: Yes, there is, and the, the uh, white paper is uh, making it clear that the, we're not just investing in, in, in mass, we're not just investing in numbers, the investment must be in systems that allow troops to multiply, you know, allow, allow the force multiplier effects. And you see that in Ukraine where relatively small numbers of troops can do big jobs, and uh, or fairly extensive jobs, and you have this sense that uh, you don't need to hold the front With such a big group of troops. And in fact, compared to the Second World War, about a tenth of the number of troops in a, in a one kilometer front line is now regarded as adequate, it's not good, but it's adequate. So three or four hundred troops, whereas in 1945 it would have been three or four thousand troops in that area. That's where we are. But f- in a way, this white paper redefines the concept of mass. It won't talk about what mass really looks like. And so say, it says that mass is not numbers the way most of us thought it was. Uh, they say mass is about capability. Well, that's always the that's that's always the get out clause. And that's a piece of string because combat capability is as good as it can be in the circumstances, according to the weather, according to who you're fighting, according to how much time you've got. You know, there's no such thing as the bottom line on combat capability until you try to use it.
0: So if this is about delivering the 2021 plan, but faster, what are the other key pieces? We heard a lot about a, a global response force.
4: Yeah, and the global response force idea is is coming back to the uh, integrated review um, before the refresh. That is the, the you know the big integrated review, which was trying to make global Britain a more a, a more specific concept in military terms, and this idea that we've got to be able to deploy fast expeditionary forces, some quite small, some as a, as a sort of just stopgap forces to prevent a situation maybe getting worse. Um, And that's the idea of these global hubs. So a hub in the north and a hub at uh, Duckham uh, in the Gulf to operate in areas to the east of that. All of that's fine. And yes, we can do it. Uh, I I think even that's quite challenging in terms of the logistics required to operate these sorts of things. But in principle, yes, you can send small forces abroad at short notice to do as they always do a very good job in the circumstance. I've got no hesitation about saying that. The problem still comes back to the fact that the the white paper makes it really clear that um, we are now preparing for war fighting in the Euro-Atlantic area and for defense of the homeland. And that's the the focus that Ukraine has added, war fighting in the Euro-Atlantic area and defense of the homeland. And for that, you still come back as the Ukrainians are finding to numbers. And the the point in paragraph 22 that everyone is quoting, they say that, well, we need technical innovation so that we don't need as many people. We just use technical (laughs) innovation and the cunning, I've never seen that word before in a defense white paper, the cunning of those who operate them. So as of this year, our forces are gonna be 25% more cunning in everything they do. (laughs)
0: So much more to ask you, Mike, but let's just pause for a moment to get the thoughts of the man at the very top of Britain's armed forces, the chief of the defence staff. Admiral Sir Tony told SITREP that despite the lack of shiny new announcements, this refresh of the Defence Command paper does deliver what's needed.
2: There are lots of things that we're seeing in Ukraine that confirm that the way that we plan to fight the Western way of warfare is the way to defeat our enemies. And that's super, super clear. And that's where we need to carry on some of the journeys that we're on. Grow even more strongly the Navy, the Army, the Air Force working together. Then we need to be stronger at introducing technology. If I give an example of one-way attack drones, we're going to be providing those to Ukraine every month for the rest of this year. And then that provokes, when are we going to have our own one-way attack drone regiments? Because they exist and we might need to change the way that we're spending money, we might need to change our structure and have the confidence to do that. And it's all about being a more lethal armed forces.
0: In what way has Ukraine fed into readiness and quick reaction? How ready is the UK to fight
2: tonight? Well, we're enormously ready because we're fortunate in that we're the beneficiary of being a nuclear nation, and we have a nuclear deterrent on station 24-7. And we're also fortunate that we're part of the world's largest and most powerful military alliance called NATO, and that's growing. And then we have these incredible armed forces full of magnificent men and women that really are at the top of their game. We're being invested in by the government. And so we have some of the best armed forces in the world and that helps to keep our nation safe. And on people,
0: uh, we've all been impressed by the way that Ukraine has mobilised a reserve and a non-reserve of people who've just come forward. What are we doing here to make more of our reserve to, if not our conventional reserve, to to have that backup? available and properly capable when needed.
2: So we've got to make a big distinction between Ukraine and the UK. Ukraine is a nation at war. It's in an existential fight to get its, its country back. So we, we, we don't have that pressure. But what we do have is we have men and women that have served and then they form part of the strategic reserve when they leave the armed forces. We have a fantastic armed forces reserve the whole time And we need to utilize that even more strongly and then we're looking to have careers that allow you to have a career as a regular soldier sailor or aviator then become a reservist or even go into private industry and and then you either contribute from those roles or you might even come back and be a regular again and so we're in a war for talent we need to get more people to join their armed forces. We need to hold on to our people even better and then we need to make it easier for people to come in sideways or to leave the armed forces and then come back in again.
0: Admiral Sir Tony radikin talking to Rosie Layden. Well, that idea of more flexible zigzag careers is central to this refresh. You re- may remember we spoke to Lieutenant General Sir Nicholas Pope on SITREP a few weeks ago about the concept, and we have an extra SITREP podcast online now, which explains it in much more detail. Uh, Mike, so the plan is still smaller, but stronger, more agile, more lethal forces, delivered more quickly. How is it going to speed up delivery of those forces?
4: Well, by doing all the things it thought about in the 2018-2019 period, just before Covid really struck, before 2030, because remember the, the logic behind the, all the Defence reviews since 2010 is that we've got all sorts of things we want to do and that all of the three armed forces are all recapitalising, they're all on a journey of transformation and they'll have completed that journey by 2030. Although there will be gaps, for instance, in the Army's ability to deploy a combat division with some air defense in it, some real air defense. But in a way, that didn't matter because actually there won't be a, a need for this sort of force structure until about 2030. Well, here we are. Ukraine war has broken out and the chances of us having to be credible on the continent with a ground force is now very high. And so that the, you know, in a way that the white paper is not giving any new ideas about what's what's going to happen, except, that we've got to do it quickly. And mm-hmm. so there has to be much more urgency. And it's not that people, of MOD civil servants or the military planners themselves lack urgency. They all work extremely hard, in my experience, and they're very expert people. They do their very, very best. But if there's no more resources into it, it can only go at a certain pace.
3: News, discussions and analysis. This is ZRAP.
0: Well, one area where more urgency is promised to speed things up is defence procurement. We'll dig into that shortly, but you may be feeling like you've heard it all before. This is the fifth defence review or partial review since 2010. So the question now is, will the ambitions and promises be delivered can they be? Well, let's bring in Paul O'Neill. As a senior RAF officer, he led the military team working on the 2015 Defence Review. He's now Director of Military Sciences at the Defence think tank RUSI. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. What do you make of this refresh, given the Defence Secretary himself says the new plan is basically the old plan, but done better and faster?
3: Well, thanks very much, Kate. It's a pleasure to join you. I think there are some interesting challenges with this paper, particularly if you look at the economic and political cycle, that we know there's going to have to be an election no later than very early 2025. And most people are betting on an election that will take place sometime next year. So there's actually remarkably little time for this particular command paper to deliver much, I think. We expect probably after the next election, there'll have to be a comprehensive spending review as well and that will require a refresh of the defence command paper and indeed the integrated review itself so i think the danger with this is it's running out of time the other problem is there is no new money of course the government made an announcement for a, an extra extra spending in the spring budget of this year but there's no new money associated with this refresh of the command paper so with little time and little money it's going to be really quite difficult Defence mm-hmm. will have to reprioritize internally. I think, though, to be fair to them, by focusing on stuff that they can manage internally, people, science and technology, the productivity question and also relationships on industry, they're giving themselves a fighting chance. But, but I am just nervous it will run out of time
0: and the criticism of past defence reviews going back decades across governments of all colours has been they're very high on ambition, perhaps too ambitious, and they don't deliver. Given the time limits that you've just explained, is this one realistic?
3: I think it has the opportunity to start setting the direction for defence, and we might start to see some turnaround or change in direction of the defence super tanker. It's unlikely that defense will be pointing in the right direction by the time of the next review, because there's always a lag. But what defense is trying to do is get after its own internal management. But that's been difficult in the past as well. So there is a danger that it won't deliver, that ambition will exceed the reality. But I think in having a relatively modest ambition, it may do slightly better in bridging that gap than previous reviews.
0: You mentioned the money, uh, no new cash, so any new spending is done by moving things around. The big one is two and a half billion pounds to rebuild stockpiles. That will have to come from savings elsewhere. Do the sums add up to deliver that?
3: That very much depends on the detail in the equipment program and whether they're going to be delaying other other programs in order to to release that kind of capital. I don't have the, the exact detail on that. Um, but over, over 10 years, 2.5 billion isn't a huge amount of money each year in comparison to a, a roughly 50 billion pound defense budget. So so I think that kind of thing is achievable. I think as well, the idea of stockpiles is, is absolutely right because we've given so much stuff to Ukraine and we knew we were doing that from a relatively low baseline of stockpiles anyway. And one of the lessons of Ukraine clearly is that mass and the ability to sustain a campaign is is hugely important.
0: Now, the pay rise for servicemen and women is going to be funded by cutting the number of defence civil servants through natural turnover. But that's not just Whitehall suits. It's also civilians delivering a whole range of support to the forces. Can their numbers be reduced without damaging that frontline capability?
3: Again, this is one of those... Uh, Hoary old chestnuts about efficiencies that defence is supposed to deliver. And in both 2010 and in 2015, there's always been downward pressure on the size of the defence civil service. And it's been difficult to reduce those numbers. And when you do reduce those numbers, it has an impact. Cutting the civil service, who cost less per person generally than the military, seems to be countering that idea of improved productivity let alone the fact that, of course, the civil servants will be supporting that improved productivity itself. And what about the people components
0: of this? The changes to make forces' careers more attractive, to strengthen the strategic reserve of people who've served in the past, can they deliver?
3: Again, I think there are two different parts to, to that question. The first one is about uh, careers, giving greater agency to individuals that the Haythorn talks about in, in its review. Uh, and I think giving people more control over their, those careers, allowing them to zigzag in and out. But it's probably not for everybody. The reality is if you want to be the commander of a carrier strike group, you're not going to be somebody who's been laterally entered and the first time you go to sea is commanding the carrier strike group and similarly as a divisional commander. But there may be more opportunity for defence at the edges to allow this kind of zigzag career. In terms of the strategic reserve, it seems absolutely sensible to go after that because, again, we see from Ukraine how war is an all-of-society approach. It needs mass. Mm. and the strategic reserve could offer that but that will require investment and again without new money it's difficult to see how the strategic reserve can be maintained at a level of readiness that is suitable or indeed people can even be kept in touch with to make sure that we we as defense know where they are and can get in touch with them in the events that they are needed so it's a good idea but the practicality of delivering is complicated
0: Can I just ask you to take a step back and give us in a sentence your your overview, your conclusion
3: then of what what you've seen? I think from a defence perspective, it is a sensible attempt to reconcile the challenges of the economic and political situation. I think from a national perspective, it doesn't deliver the forces that Ukraine would suggest the UK needs.
0: Paul O'Neill, great to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Well, delivering this plan for updated British Armed Forces hinges on delivering new equipment and technology for them to use, as well as staples like artillery shells, which have been gifted in their hundreds of thousands to Ukraine. The government jargon for buying and managing this kit is procurement. Just two days before the command paper refresh was published, a cross-party group of MPs issued a report on defence procurement, plainly titled, It Is Broke, and it's time to fix it. So does this updated command paper deliver that fix? Mark francois chairs the Defence Subcommittee.
1: The way that we summarise the problem, if I can just read you one kind of key paragraph that sums it up, we have discovered a UK procurement system which is highly bureaucratic, overly stratified, far too ponderous, with an inconsistent approach to safety, very poor accountability, and a culture which appears institutionally averse to individual responsibility. And after years of being in denial that there was really anything wrong, whereas everyone and his wife could see that there was lots wrong, there's been this sort of damascene conversion. And in effect in this chapter on acquisition, they accept many of the recommendations in our report. So I am claiming that as an all-time world record of 48 hours to respond positively to a select committee report and endorse a bunch of its recommendations.
0: And central to what was announced is a new time limit of five years for new acquisitions. Is that realistic?
1: Uh, it, with, with good management yes and they also say three years for digital programs so how they're going to do that for Morpheus I would vary the, the new system to replace Bowman I would be intrigued to note but one of the key themes in our report was the lack of urgency in the procurement system so when you've got an urgent operational requirement you know you drop all of the bureaucracy and you bring a bit of kit into service as fast as you can. We got very good at doing this in Afghanistan with the so-called dogs of war, you know, those vehicles, things like Mastiff is just one example of that. So when the chips are down, we can do it in weeks or months. But then when they're not, we just carry on spending years doing it. And if you want one acid comparison, defense equipment and support, that we praise, we uh, commend them for what they've been doing to support the Ukrainians. To be fair, but there are 11,500 people working in DNS. The Israeli equivalent, which is called DOP, the Directorate of Procurement and Production, does the same job with 300 people. So don't tell me there's no room for reform in DNS.
0: I mean, we couldn't expect to buy an aircraft carrier on new nuclear submarines in five years, though, could we?
1: no you, you would uh, you would stretch to do, well it's taken us 11 years as we point out to bring the it's going to take us 11 years to bring the type 26 into into service whereas the japanese can can produce an equivalent ship in a third of the time but i think we could do these things far quicker but what we need is a change of mindset you know the the whole system has to has to accept that it's got to do things far quicker. So could you build an aircraft carrier from scratch in five years if you really put your mind to it? You probably could. I'm sure the Japanese and the South Koreans could do it with sufficient will and alacrity. The problem is, in the case of the carriers, they were famously delayed when Gordon Brown was Prime Minister, and that added over a billion pounds to the programme. But having mentioned Gordon Brown, for the avoidance of doubt, these problems are deep seated. and They've been going on for decades under governments of both colours. So, so both Conservative and Labour have questions to answer about the procurators.
0: If you do, though, impose this new five year time limit, what do you do if it's looking like it's going to run over? Do you cancel it? Do you start again? Because, again, that's just more money and more time.
1: Well, one of the things we've said is we should use much greater use of what's now called spiral development uh, as opposed to what's sometimes called exquisite procurement. So rather than start from scratch and try and build an exquisite system, you gradually upgrade and develop the kit that you've got in order to keep it current and capable, but without having always to go back to the drawing board and you know, design a Rolls Royce when you you could upgrade your BMW or your Jaguar instead, as it were.
0: I mean, on the one hand, it, this plan for the forces is built around them having the very best equipment to give them battle-winning <laughs> advantage. And then on the other hand, you've got don't overspecify, don't hold out for the very best, get what they need, get it quicker. I mean, are they inherently uh, inherently contradictory positions? No, the,
1: the way through the way through is is spiral development. So that you take what you've got and then you gradually, incrementally improve it. If you do need to start from scratch, you have to be really disciplined about setting the requirements and not over-specifying it. Right? So what we're saying is that defence equipment and support, to be fair to them, like, like their counterparts, the DGA in France, should be there in the room, as it were, when the requirement is being born. Because part of one of the weaknesses in our system is the military define the requirement and they want every single bell and whistle imaginable. Right? It's then given to DNS, who, as one witness said to us, are then asked in some cases to bend the law of physics in order to build it or create it. So the way the French do it is they have the procurement people in the room with the military people and they agree the requirement between them so that they're confident that they can actually build what the military want.
0: So what you've recommended and what you've heard this week, does this mean that procurement will finally be fixed?
1: Well, there have been 16 other reviews of this that we cited in our report before we got to our one, and none of them have led to really fundamental change. So if you're a cynic, you will say, well, this is the 17th report. But I do believe that we are in a position now where there will be change. Why? One, because of the war in Ukraine, we now have an operational imperative to get far better and to hurry up. And we now, at last, after years of basically being in denial, we now have a government policy saying we want to speed everything up. So if we could get the Ministry of Defence to undertake a complete damascene conversion in 48 hours, we could probably build an aircraft carrier in five years.
0: When are service personnel going to notice the difference?
1: The sooner, the better. So Ajax, for instance, uh, should now enter operational service at the back end of 2025. That's too slow. But they, they swear blind to us that they got over these vibration and noise problems. Service personnel should hopefully in the next few years, realistically, start to get better kit quicker and more efficiently. So you can you can write as many reports as you want. The proof of the pudding is always in the eating, isn't it? But well, I do really think that there is now a genuine opportunity to change. The question is whether or not the Ministry of Defence will take it. But if you believe what it says in the DCPR, at the very least, they're going to have a decent crack at it.
0: Mark Francois, great to talk to you. Thank you for your time.
1: Thanks very much.
3: BFBS. The Forces Station. The forces Station. Cedrep. Cedrep.
0: Mike it can feel like you're missing the point talking about procurement in Whitehall and Bristol instead of what troops can do on the battlefield but they're inextricably linked aren't they so how much do servicemen and women have riding on these promises that procurement will be fixed?
4: Oh a great deal Um, because we know that although we've got the systems in in demonstrator form or in prototype form we don't have big numbers and we're still waiting for, of course, Ajax for the, for the army and the boxer is there, but how many numbers? Challenger three will be very good, but how many are we gonna have? Well, we know now as a result of the white paper, how many will we will have, but how many will we have by this time next year or the year after? The, so numbers are very, very small and it matters hugely. And on this whole issue of procurement, you know, I mean, when, when you've been around as long as I have, you've, you've seen it all three times before. In 1997, The Defence White Paper, George Robertson's Defence White Paper talked about smart procurement. And what that said was, we'll do everything better. We'll just be Mm. smarter in every aspect of procurement. And that's what they tried to do. And it was a slogan and so on. In the middle of the last decade, um, Bernard Gray got hold of it. And Bernard Gray was a a journalist, advisor, brought in from the outside with radical ideas. And he tried to change the whole model of how we work with the Defence Procurement Executive and what happens at Abbey Wood and so on. Um, And that didn't work. We went in a complete circle and ended up back where we started. And since 2018, we've been back at square one. And between 2018 and 2023, we have marked time at square one. So we are back where we were in 1997, saying we've got to do everything a bit better. We've got to be a bit smarter. But nobody can actually get hold of the model and change it in a way that creates a step change in the speed with which this good equipment comes out of the... Uh, factories and out of the development uh, cycle and into the hands of the frontline boys and girls.
0: Is there any room for optimism Mike?
4: There is some, yes, uh, in the sense that the defence is moving in the right direction. I'm sure that intellectually Defence has got it right. We've got the, um, the the sort of picture of the world right. I think the integrated review is very good on that. We've got a good understanding of that. We're good at conceptualising the problem. We're not very good at uh, preparing for it, and we're quite good at reacting to it when it, when things happen, you know, for good and bad. Um, so I think we are we're moving in the right direction. The issue is speed and whether the world will give us till twenty thirty to get this right. And Of course, we know it won't, and it's not only that we are we're not. We're not capable of doing much more to counter what's going on in Ukraine. We can do a bit more, but not much more before we we really are scraping the barrel with what we can offer. Um, And the danger is also that we are losing our diplomatic influence. We're losing our ability to persuade other powers of of the importance of the things we think are important because other powers take size seriously. They look for numbers. How many ships, tanks, and planes? How many troops do you actually deploy when we need you? And I'm afraid it still comes down to that. Even in the the high-tech era in which we live, it still comes down to a, a version of boots on the ground.
0: Now, before we go, we should just reflect on one further important thing about the announcement of the Defence Commander Paper refresh.
1: Madam Deputy Speaker, this is likely to be one of my last appearances at this dispatch box. It's been the greatest privilege to have served the Secretary of State for Defence for the last four years.
0: Ben Wallace is standing down as Defence Secretary. Mike, um, as you and I speak, he's still in the job. He will be until a Cabinet reshuffle, which could come in hours or might not be until September. Either way, any thoughts on who his successor will be?
4: Yes, I mean, people talk about John Glenn, who's been in the Treasury for quite a long time. I remember him on the Defence Committee, and he's a very credible character. Good at detail and i think defense would like him but whoever gets it of course is is only there until uh, the election and then they may may not carry on after that depending on what ha- what's happened but john glenn would do that very well uh, Penny Mordaunt, of course, has been Defence Secretary once before, so she's a credible candidate because she could get into it very quickly. You know, she likes the job. She knows what she's doing in that job. And then Tom Tugendhat, Security Minister, so he's in the government. He's got the background. He worked for David Richards, of course, as personal assistant when he was in the forces for a long time. Uh, it would be a big step up for Tom Tugendhat, I think, in terms of seniority, and I'm sure he would rise to that, but that might raise a few eyebrows, but those would be my the, the, my top three as it were.
0: What about the Armed Forces Minister James Heapy, seemingly Ben Wallace's favoured successor?
4: Yes, I mean James Heapy uh, is very committed to defence and he's very competent. Um, it would be a, again a step up for him. And so that is, a, is a, again, an, another good continuity possibility. But the MOD has enjoyed, under Ben Wallace, some genuine continuity. And um, mm. one would hope for MOD's uh, perspective that that would continue, at least in these next few turbulent months.
0: And there were fulsome tributes from both sides of the House to Mr Wallace as the longest serving Conservative Defence Secretary. Now I know that's customary, but there was a sense that he will be missed in the job.
4: I think he will. Yes, I mean, people liked him. Uh, as I say, he's a Scotch Guards officer. He's straightforward. Um, he's, ve- he's very good um, debating on political things. I mean, I don't, you know, he, ne- he never gets into, the, into uh, great philosoph- philosophical issues when he talks about stuff. But he actually, he's very good at putting the point across on most issues, but particularly on defence issues.
0: Mike, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. I will be back with another SITREP next Thursday. In the meantime, you can listen to our extra edition of the SITREP podcast with retired Lieutenant General Sir Nicholas Pope explaining the plan for zigzag careers, which are a key part of this new defence plan. It's online now and at bfbs.com slash SITREP or wherever you download your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye bye.